Well, welcome Summit family at all of our locations. My name is Curtis. Um, I'm one of your pastors here. A few things I enjoy doing more than getting the opportunity to deliver God's word to you. And so um, if you have not been with us the last few weeks, we are in our final week of a series entitled Altered, where we have been looking at various interactions that people had with Jesus and how each time they left changed or altered. And so, so far we've seen how Jesus interacts with doubters. We've seen how he shows up for the desperate and we've seen how he has grace for failures. And so I'm the last guy in this four-man relay. Pastors Derek and Will and Ricky, I feel like have given us quite the lead. And so I'm just going to try not to stumble over my legs in this final final get after the finish line, all right? And so um, if I'm being honest with you, I am pretty excited this morning. I'm pretty expectant to see what God is going to do. Um, I've had this message, this very message I'm about to preach to you on my heart for uh, probably about two years now. And um, God, for whatever reason, in his sovereignty has not allowed me to preach it until now. There have been plenty of weekends in the past where Pastor J.D. has said, hey, whenever you're preaching, whatever you feel like God has laid on your heart for the people of the Summit Church, deliver it. And um, God has just withheld it until this weekend. And so um, I'm excited. I'm expectant. I'm going to give you all I got. Uh, I am not lying when I say this. Last service I preached and my abs started to cramp. And so we're going to get after it this morning. Um, And as we do that, you can call me a fool, but I am believing that God is going to set some people free today. I'm believing some people are going to be set free from sin and shame and suffering and striving and searching. I believe some of you here who have been hurting or who have felt marginalized or isolated or discarded or broken or paralyzed are going to meet with Jesus today, okay? Anybody else expectant to see God move? Um, I'm ready to get after it, all right? I know I've heard from Pastor Eric over at Chapel Hill and Derek at Blue Ridge, and so um, I know those guys are ready too. So uh, if you have your Bible, uh, take it out, turn it on, whatever you got to do. We're going to be over in the book of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4, that's New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John, chapter 4, where um, we are going to walk through what is actually the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and another person in all of the Bible. And that's the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And this week, what I want to show you is what it looks like for Jesus to interact with someone who is misunderstood. Someone who's misunderstood. Somebody who we might say has has a past or has some junk. Someone who might find themselves in a complicated situation that might not be easily understood on the surface. I want to show you what it looks like for Jesus to come face to face with somebody like that. And so there's good news this morning. That means if you are here this morning and you've got some, you've got some stuff, some stuff you wouldn't want anybody to know about, whether it's some, something you've done or, or whether it's something that has been done to you, if you've got some stuff that maybe you are embarrassed of right now, Maybe some stuff you would be terrified, just petrified if anybody found out about you. Something that would make you fear eye contact with somebody if it were known. If that's you, then I want to say, welcome. Jesus is ready to meet with you. And also let me add that you are in fantastic company because we've all got some stuff, all right? In fact, I believe Jesus is going to dig up some stuff today that you have kept locked up, not to cast you out or to condemn you, but rather to show you that he is the only person in the universe who knows you completely and yet still chooses to love you perfectly. 
I'm believing that the grace of God is going to actually call you out today in order to pull you in. Because that's who our Savior is. Jesus is compassionate and he is aggressive and he is surgical and he is relentless in his love. Yet the tragedy is that so very often the place that Jesus wants to do his most significant work in your life is probably the very place that you spend so much time trying to hide. So whatever that, whatever that thing is for you, Given the opportunity, whatever that thing is for you, I know you would probably prefer a second chance or a do-over or time travel if it were possible. But what God has to offer you this morning is something so much better than all of those things. God stands ready to offer you grace. Grace that can fill the gaps created by your sin or by the sins of others. God offers grace that allows us to honestly face and carry our paths without ever being controlled by them. God's grace wants to give your past new meaning and wants to give your future new hope this morning, all right? And so John chapter four, like I said, we're gonna roll through this whole thing, this whole story. John chapter four, let's begin reading in verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now pause, let's be clear about something. Jesus didn't have to do anything. He's the son of God. Jesus does what Jesus wants to do, yet the text says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, yes, Samaria at this time was the most direct route of travel from Judea to Galilee. However, most travelers would have purposefully gone well out of their way just to avoid it, which we're going to see more of in a minute. All we need to know right now is that while Samaria was not a geographic necessity for Jesus's travels, it was a necessity for his mission. See, Jesus had to pass through Samaria to an out-of-the-way town in order to extend grace to an out-of-the-way woman. All right, look back at verse five. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon, so it's middle of the day. Here Jesus is, middle of the day, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is totally unrelated, but I find it funny enough to point out to you. But have you ever noticed that it takes only one woman to get water, but it takes 12 guys to go get food? <laughs> like you ever sent your husband to the grocery store and felt like this? <laughs> 2,000 years later, the Bible's still speaking to us, right? It takes, it takes 12 men to do the job of one woman. I'd take a stay-at-home mom over an entire football team any day of the week, all right? That's where I stand. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, remember when I said most people would have traveled well out of their way to avoid Samaria. Well, that's because way back in the day, part of Israel, the northern part of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. 
So the Israelites that remained there when the Assyrians conquered, they actually began intermarrying. The Assyrians and the Israelites began intermarrying. And as they had children, this created a new breed of people that we now know as the Samaritans. Nobody liked the Samaritans. They were this half Jew, half Gentile race. They were kind of the the muggles of the day, if you will. And nobody liked them at all. In fact, again, most people disliked them so much that when they would travel, they would walk two and a half to three days just to go around Samaria to avoid it. Now, I don't like walking a 5K for a good cause that has donuts at the end, much less traveling three days out of my way. So if you're willing to do that, you really, really, really don't like somebody. See, to be a Samaritan meant to be wholeheartedly rejected by the Jews, to be seen as inferior to the Jews, as outcasts, as ceremonially unclean, as racially impure, as religiously heretical. And therefore, Samaritans were to be avoided at all costs. So there's a few problems here when Jesus decides to cross through Samaria and sit down in a very public place next to a Samaritan woman. There are ethnic, there are racial, religious, and cultural rules that Jesus is breaking. Yet, Jesus sought to be alone with her. Jesus had to go through Samaria to talk with her. In fact, if we were to read it again, we would see that Jesus sat down on the well and waited for her, waited for a woman, a Samaritan, an outcast, a divorcee, as we'll see. And Jesus then proceeds to ask to drink from her bucket with her saliva, which would have actually made him unclean by Jewish legal standards. In fact, to a Jew, drinking from her bucket would have been seen equally as offensive as eating raw pig flesh. This is the best way I can think to illustrate how mind-boggling this would be. Um, Give me grace with this example. Would would be like, um, think 1950s in the South. This would be like a white man walking up to a colored water fountain and asking a black man if he could drink from his water bottle. For a white man, that would be unthinkable in 1950s South but it would also be inconceivable to the man with which whom he was asking if he could drink. In just simply having this conversation, Jesus is shattering society's notion of what is acceptable. Jesus is showing that he's willing to offend cultural norms when they are sinful. Just by chatting with this woman, Jesus is giving us a simple but beautiful illustration of how deeply he held the convictions that racism is wrong and that he is willing to welcome anyone from any background with any sin into his family if they would just receive him. Even the placement of this story points us to that truth. Because see, one chapter earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a very well-respected religious Pharisee named Nicodemus. And then here we are one chapter later in John chapter four, where he's having a conversation with this completely unnamed woman from Samaria. From Samaria. See, John chapter three, Nicodemus shows us that nobody is beyond the need of God's grace. John chapter four, this woman from Samaria shows us that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. What they both show us is that Jesus is an equal opportunity saver. <laughs> See, Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment to break down ethnic and cultural and racial and religious walls in order to offer this woman new life. So when Jesus decides to ask her from a drink from her jar, even she's confused by it. She's like, wait, what? Aren't aren't you the one who's supposed to have the problem with me? But what she doesn't realize is that Jesus is about to move on to something far more important 
than physical thirst. The thirst and the longing of her soul. So look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the living water that Jesus offered her is the very thing for which all of our souls were designed for, a relationship with our creator. And drinking this living water then leads to new life that is made available by Jesus through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to what Jesus says here. Because for the first 21 years of my life before I met Christ, my life had been marked by being thirsty. I was thirsty for love and thirsty for meaning and thirsty for purpose. Therefore, I thought the next girlfriend or the next high or the next party or the next accolade or the next bed or the next drink would satisfy that thirst and make it go away. But nope, still thirsty. You've been here, right? I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you thought the job would make the thirst go away, but it didn't. Still thirsty. Maybe you thought getting married would make it go away. And seven years in, you love it, but you realize it, it didn't. Still thirsty. You thought kids would make the thirst go away. And you love your kids, even though you'd probably want to throw them in a well sometime. But nonetheless, you realize kids didn't do it. Still thirsty. Maybe you thought getting in shape would satisfy the thirst, but then you recognize that there's always another goal to chase or another comparison trap to fall into that leaves you utterly dissatisfied. Still thirsty. The well you are drinking from might involve drinking of relationships or new cars or locations or wardrobes or hairstyles. I don't know what it is. And that well, I will tell you, it might satisfy you for a moment or for a night or even for a season, but I promise you are going to get thirsty again. What you're drinking just won't last. This is why the gospel, friends, is so beautiful because the gospel tells us that Jesus offers us something that is eternal, something that will last. The gospel, the good news that Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death that we were condemned to die. The, the good news that Jesus took upon himself our sin and our shame and our condemnation and all the things that we are embarrassed about, all of our stuff, he took it upon himself, gave us his perfect spotless righteousness, credited that righteousness to our account before God the Father, took upon himself our sin on the cross, took it to the grave, died with it, but did not stay dead, rose again to show us that he has power over sin and our shame and our suffering and our grief and all of those things. Therefore, when we receive him, we receive eternal life, eternal hope, eternal joy, eternal communion, and eternal acceptance and satisfaction. That's what we get in the gospel. See, Jesus wasn't at this well just to quench his thirst. He was at this well to quench this woman's thirst. Jesus offers her living water. And so naturally, look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here. We're gonna come back to that word, to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. It's an interesting turn. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. You're like, dang, Jesus, take it easy, man. (laughs) You got to go all like that on her. She's like, go get your husband. She's like, yeah, so what happened was like, seems like he just goes straight for this gut punch with this woman, right? You know, I've asked a ton of people over the last few weeks in preparing this message. I've said, hey, when you, when you think about John chapter 4, the woman at the well, um, first word that comes to mind, what, what do you think about? And instinctively, without even thinking, every single person has said, adulteress, adulteress, adulteress. But we want to be people who are faithful to Scripture, right? And we need to remember that Scripture never actually tells us what happened to her five previous marriages. For all we know, the five previous guys died. Maybe that's why the sixth guy won't marry her. He's like, nope, seeing how this story ends, ain't going out like that. (laughs) We always just go straight to the assumption that she's just some kind of hussy jumping around from guy to guy. We jump straight to adulteress when scripture actually never calls her such. What's far more likely if we were to really dig into this is that she has been through a few divorces. And divorce, listen to this, divorce in those days had to be initiated by the husband. Think about that. That means this woman has been told at least five times you are not wanted. Five times that she's expendable. Five times that she is unworthy of love. And now the sixth time she's out getting water for a guy who refuses to even give her his last name and probably only wants her for sex and servitude. See, it's real easy to criticize adulteress. It's easy to criticize what we don't understand. And here we find this completely misunderstood woman who even evangelicalism always references as adulteress, sexually promiscuous. And yes, she's a sinner. I do not want to glaze over that. I'm confident that she had her own giant bag of stuff. But we don't talk much about how to be a divorcee or to be alone as a woman in the hyper-patriarchal culture of that day meant that your options were to starve, to be a slave, or to relegate yourself to prostitution. So far more likely is that she just keeps remarrying just to stay out of those things. Again, yes, I don't want to skim over it. She should not be living with this guy. She is living in sin. But please, when you read her story, don't read our modern culture into her choices. Her broken past wasn't solely a result of her choices, but also of other sin and others' choices. Ultimately, what we see in this woman at the well is a lost woman who has never truly experienced true love or care or grace. A woman who has been deeply, deeply wounded. And even her fellow Samaritans completely misunderstood her in this manner. It was why she was at the well by herself at noon in the middle of the day. Every respectable woman in society would have gone to the well in a group in the morning. One, to avoid the heat of the day. But two, they would have gone in a group to ensure protection. But most likely because she was so misunderstood, everybody else saw her as shameful sinner as adulteress, as harlot, as used and damaged goods, probably as a threat to their own husbands. Therefore, this woman was living all alone in the shame of her current lifestyle, probably the regrets from past relationships, and most likely the sins that had been committed against her. 
But then along comes Jesus, a friend to the lonely, a comforter to the hurting, a savior to sinners. Jesus, who has a divine appointment with her. Jesus, who sits and waits for her at this well. Jesus, who had to go through Samaria to meet with her. For her, perhaps Jesus was the first man in her entire life to give to her instead of take from her. It was probably the first time in her life that a man treated her with dignity and respect, that a man spoke to her about truth, that a man loved her without using her sexually. In calling out her sin, Jesus isn't just trying to condemn this woman. What he's trying to do is expose the thirst inside of her that even she didn't know she had so that she will drink deeply from this well of salvation. He knows that she desires this living water before even she does. That's why when he offers it to her, she says, yes, please give this to me. She says, because I don't want to have to keep coming back here to draw water. You remember that word? Because she says, every time I make this walk by myself in the heat of the day, in the middle, it is inconvenient. Here is a reminder of how I'm constantly judged and misunderstood. Here is a reminder that I have no friends. Here is a reminder of my complicated and hurtful past and how I've been rejected. And Jesus responds to her by saying, I know, I know it is. I know you, I know everything about you. He says, I see you completely. He says, I see how you've been hurt. He says, I also see how you're hurting yourself. I see the wells that you've been drinking from. I see your desire to be loved and accepted. And I'm here, he says, not to shame you, but to save you. He says, I'm here not to push you away, but to pull you in and comfort you. He says, you don't have to hide anything from me. I already see and I know it all and I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. So please take this living water. Take me, take my hand, take my name. Drink from this well of living water. Friends, in the same way, this living water is freely offered to every single one of us today. And yes, it is freely offered, but do not receive it lightly for it came at such a great cost. See, the same man who offers living water is the same savior who was lifted up on a tree at Calvary and would cry out with the words, I thirst. However, instead of Jesus drinking of living water, Jesus willingly and lovingly chooses to drink the cup of God's wrath and our sin on our behalf so that you and I could drink from the well of salvation. I have absolutely no idea why you're here today. But I do know that for so many of you, you are drinking from a well that cannot ultimately satisfy. And I beg you, I implore you to throw your jar away and drink from this fountain of salvation named Jesus, to drink deeply of the grace offered to you by Christ in the form of a new life. Let's keep reading verse 19. Jesus has gotten so uncomfortably personal with this woman. He's made things all awkward. And she decides to respond by saying, sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's like, hey, Jesus, as long as we're on the subject of my sex life, where do you think we should worship? <laughs> this mountain or over in Jerusalem? 
Again, 2,000 years later, nothing's changed, right? Because this is the universal reflex of someone who's trying to avoid conviction, yeah? Because it's much more comfortable to discuss religion abstractly than it is to confront sin personally. Again, at surface level, it just looks like she's trying to avoid the question, avoid her past, avoid her sins. And I'm sure she's trying to do that to some degree. But honestly, if some stranger just showed up and started poking and prodding around my past, I would probably try to change the subject too. What I want us to do is see if we peel back the layers of this onion, I think there's a deeper longing in her question actually. Because see, she's asking about a place of worship. What is a place of worship? A place of worship is where you go to meet with God. A place of worship is where you go to atone for sins. It's a place to be forgiven. A place of worship is a place to be accepted. And so what if, rather than just trying to avoid the conversation about her past and her sin, which again, I'm sure she's trying to do to some degree, but what if she's actually asking, okay, you're obviously a prophet, Jesus. So tell me, please tell me, where can I go? Where can I go to wash my hands of all this? Where can I go to be made whole again? Please tell me where this place of worship is, where I can be loved and accepted. Tell me, Jesus, tell me where is this place of worship? And so verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes... He's going to tell us all these things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus responds to her question about worship by saying, you are asking the wrong question entirely. Because worship is not a matter of where, but of who. He's showing her that worship is not about locality as much as it is about relational reality with him. Jesus is standing before her saying, hey, I am the place to worship. I am the true temple. I am the way to God. I am the place to be forgiven. I am the place you find peace. I am the place where the sin sacrifice was made once and for all. I am the place to be made clean and be made new and to be satisfied. So please, woman, please come drink of this well. I'm waiting for you today. And I believe, Summit Church, in the exact same way that he who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God is also still right now seated at the well waiting to meet with you because that's what Jesus does. Regardless of what you came in here with, he seeks out the outcast. He brings hope to the hopeless. He loves the misunderstood. He empathizes with the weary. He weeps with those who are weeping and he is waiting at the well today. Jesus, the one who can set you free, he's the mighty one. He's the deliverer. He's the Messiah. He's the redeemer the restorer who is our hope and our peace and he is waiting at the well for you today. What this means is that Jesus can be your rock in shaky situations. He can be your provider when you have absolutely nothing left. He can be your advocate before God the Father transferring his perfect spotless record of righteousness onto yours before God and he's waiting for you at the well today to show you the way, the truth, the life and to offer you living water which will therefore satisfy your soul for all eternity. That is Jesus. Thank you. 
He's come today to meet you at the well, to give your past new meaning and to give your future new hope. So if you're here and you feel unwanted, Jesus is waiting for you. If you're here and you feel unloved or discarded, Jesus is waiting for you. If you feel misunderstood, Jesus is waiting for you and he's offering you the greatest thing in the entire world himself. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. Took those mugs a long time to find food, didn't it? (laughs) They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. I could preach a whole sermon on that. And said to the people, verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now let's not forget church. Originally, this woman was at the well at noon to avoid people. And now one interaction with Jesus, she's running toward people to tell them about Christ. Her eyes have been opened to the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus as Savior. Her life has been forever altered. And now her natural disposition, which should also be ours if we call ourselves believers of Christ, is come and see, come and see, come and see. But not just come and see though. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The same woman who spent her life hiding from other people is now wearing her past on her sleeve as proof that Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus has transformed her past from a badge of shame to an emblem of power. Jesus has given her past new meaning and he's given her future new hope and purpose. She's found living water and now what's most important to her is telling others where to find it. And so look what happened in verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed in him because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe for we've heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. What an incredible story. The Messiah meeting the misunderstood. This unnamed Samaritan woman was probably the most least likely prospect for salvation in the entire village. Yet God uses her to win to salvation almost an entire town. (laughs) In fact, you know what? This unnamed Samaritan woman who we so often remember as adulteress, In fact, a number of church historians actually remember her as a missionary named Fotine, a woman who single-handedly brought the good news about Jesus the Messiah into a non-Jewish marginalized people. And then along with her two sons who had also become believers because of her, take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ up to North Africa to preach the gospel where they are ultimately martyred as missionaries by the emperor Nero. 
Because after meeting Jesus and experiencing life-altering grace, she goes from being an outcast to being an evangelist. (laughs) Because of this life-altering grace, she goes from trying to hide her past to using her past as the very platform by which she tells people about the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Because of life-altering grace, she who was once severely misunderstood has become one of the greatest missionaries in all of Scripture. So what you should hear from that is don't you dare be ashamed of what God has brought you out of, woman at the well. You should be amazed at the grace of God offered to you in Jesus Christ. Because of this life-altering grace, you no longer have to be a slave to anything you have ever done or anything that's ever been done to you. Because of this life-altering grace, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This life-altering grace means that you can become a new creation today in Christ. This grace means that you have a new purpose in life. This grace means that you are not your past. This grace means you do not have to identify with your sins. You are not your mistakes. You are not what's been done to you. You are not your sexuality. You are not other people's opinions of you. You are not other people's misunderstandings of what you've been through because of the grace of God offered to you in Jesus Christ. You were created by God, loved by God, offered eternal life by God, and then are set forth on mission for God, for his glory. This grace, church, it's grace. You know, the author John had a bit of an obsession with the number seven in his gospel. If we were to read the entire book of John beginning to end, we'd see this number seven over and over and over. And traditionally in the Bible, the number seven represents perfection or completeness. And as I was studying this text, I just couldn't help but notice that this woman has had five husbands. And now the sixth man she's living with is not her husband, which makes Jesus the seventh man who dares get close to her. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, even numerically, you have been working your way through all of these relationships, but the relationship, the perfect relationship, the complete relationship you are looking for is me. I'm the romance you've been looking for. I'm the friendship you've been looking for. I'm the confidant you've been looking for. I'm the counselor you've been looking for. I'm the comforter you've been looking for. Jesus is looking at her and I believe he is looking at you today saying, will you take me to be your groom? Your life might be a total mess. You may have been dismissed, unloved, But Jesus says, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. I will never cast you out. I will never condemn you. Take my hand, drink of this living water. He says, for I am the one who can release you from the shame and the guilt and the regret and the pain of your past. And I can give your future new meaning and hope. That's the question. Will you take him today? Will you drink deeply of this well of salvation and take this living water? When I think about the beauty of this grace, I can't help but think of someone who is very close to me who went through a similar journey where she met Jesus. 
It's such an incredible, incredible story of God's grace. And so I wanna end our sermon time together. Um, Why don't you check this out? When I was 16, I was in a pretty serious relationship with a guy who was 18 and um, we had been dating for about a year and um, I had a feeling that I was pregnant and I took a pregnancy test and it was positive. Just in an immediate state of panic, um, never had any thoughts of any other option other than abortion. Um, My thoughts were, I'm 16, going to college in a few years, my whole life is ahead of me, Um, I need to quickly and quietly get rid of this. And so we, we went to the abortion clinic and it wasn't like maybe what the media portrays it would be like people picketing outside and there's none of that. It was a normal doctor's office it seemed like. However, um, it wasn't really normal because everyone that was in there in the waiting room had their heads hung low and there was a heavy weight in that room. I do remember the room, I remember the procedure, I remember the nurses, there was two of them. They were not chatty, um, lights were low. Um, and I remember them told, they, they told me I was six weeks and six days along. And then it was very quick, it was just a few minutes, and then I was basically carried out by my mom and my boyfriend and drove home and literally never talked about it again, you know, until I came to know the Lord. So after my abortion, life went on as normal. I graduated from high school with honors, um, went to college, wasn't dating the guy that I was dating in high school anymore. I was dating a new guy who was like a staunch atheist. And it was baffling to me, because again, I considered myself a Christian. So on a whim, we went to this church we swore we'd never go to. It was a huge church. We called it Six Flags Over Jesus. And this woman got up and she was from a pregnancy support service group. Um, and I'm like, great, here we go. Like, she's gonna be like, you're going to hell, sinner. And she was the opposite of what I would have guessed a woman in a Southern Baptist church would be presenting um, on abortion. And she was so kind and compassionate and her softness is what broke my hard heart because that abortion, I, it was like a barrier. I put it in, it was tucked in my heart and it was like a hard shell around it and it was reinforced and nobody was getting in. It was the first time that I really understood the depravity and the darkness and the sinfulness of my sin and what that cost God. But ultimately that's what God used to bring me to himself. I mean, it was like, I felt like the violence of it and the weight of that particular sin and it was like, in a, and again, a congregation of thousands, God was talking to me. Like there was no one else in the room. It was God doing business with my heart. It was literally like scales fell from my eyes and God gave me a heart of flesh and replaced my heart of stone. And in a moment, and this, I know this isn't everyone's story, but this is my story. And in a moment, it was like new life was breathed into me. And one of my favorite scriptures when I became a believer was, If you are now in Christ, the old things have gone and the new things have come. And I was a new creation, born again in a moment. The first six months after I came to know the Lord, it was a lot of like trying to figure out what life looks like to be a believer, not in the party lifestyle anymore. And there was a guy that um, 
I met the summer that I got saved, and um, here I am, 10 years into marriage, and I'm a pastor's wife. Like, would, would not have guessed that, um, but God has been so faithful. We have three beautiful children that God has graced us with, and literally everything in my life, I'm so thankful for my particular story. As painful as it is and as shameful as it is, um, I'm so thankful for it because I know that everything in my life is a gift of unmerited favor. It is a gift of God's grace, and I'm so thankful. So when you see me with my hands in the air when I'm worshiping at church and tears rolling down my face, it is not because I'm ashamed of my past. It is because I am in awe of my Savior. The Summit, friends and family, I would like to introduce you to the woman from the video. This is my wife, Elizabeth, who I have never been more proud of in my entire life. Then this weekend, um, I've seen that a hundred times and I've heard the story a hundred times and I'm holding back tears every single service because it's just such a reminder that God can do anything. Um, with man, what is impossible, all things are possible with God. And so we stand before you, um, both of us as products of his grace, the same grace that is offered to you today. And so um, when I told you that God laid on my heart two years ago, a message that he had not allowed me to preach yet, um, this was it. And Liz and I would go back and forth. And it wasn't just her saying no. We would both feel like, no, now's not the time. Now's not the time. And um, when we were presented with this sermon series, we said, I think... I think God's calling us to do this in his sovereignty. And so with that being said, I, I really have to believe that there are so many people that resonate, um, whether very specifically with Elizabeth's story or, or of her past, um, or maybe not so specifically, but just people in a church this size that are, that are hurting. And so I asked her to join me on stage. And so um, for somebody that would be uh, just hurting somebody here that's broken, whether because of a sin that they have committed or maybe a sin that's been committed against them. What, what would you want to say to that person? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> our friend Hank, who's actually leading worship at North Raleigh this weekend, just texted me and said, I, I couldn't help but notice you said you're six, day, six weeks and six days along, which would make the seventh day, the seventh week, and that's the beginning of like where God was writing your story. Somebody better come on now. And hey, I was Murphy's like, preaching from another campus, y'all. Oh my gosh, <laughs> how have I not realized that? So God is just in the story writing business. Um, but yeah, what God has put on my heart to share with you guys about what Curtis' question was. God is the lifter of our heads. Um, he says that in the Psalms. So when Curtis was talking about what is the thing that you would have your eyes to the floor um, to tell even your closest friend, more or less the Lord. Um, I want you to meet that with what God says of himself being the lifter of our heads in Psalms where he lifts your head and he locks eyes with yours and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Um, and also who the son sets free is free indeed. Yeah, it's so good. Um, so God not only saved you from your past, he gave your past new meaning. That's what we've seen. That's what we just heard, right? The very thing that, that you felt was keeping you away from God was the very mm -hmm. thing God used you to bring you to yeah. himself. So completely redefining your past is what his grace did. But then he also gave your future new meaning and purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so um, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I so resonate with that. And I actually think that that's a good place to be, um, to have a broken and contrite heart. The Lord will not despise that. Um, So I say along with Paul that I received mercy for this reason, um, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Um, And God used me right away. I mean, after I got saved, Curtis was not a believer. We were Facebook friends. He was posting sad and depressing things on Facebook. And I was like, let me tell you about a well that doesn't run dry. You told me everything ever did. I mean, I was like telling everybody about Jesus. So maybe you two have had an abortion. Maybe you are the parent who drove someone to have an abortion or the boyfriend or whatever. Maybe it's not even related to abortion. Maybe it's something totally different. Um, God can save to the uttermost. His arm is not too short to save. Yeah. For those of you that have heard me preach before, I usually share my story, which is, um, yeah, there was a girl that came to Christ who ultimately led me to Christ. And then we got married. So two birds, one stone, pretty good deal there. Um, But uh, it's been so awesome to see how God has used um, our past. We're not ashamed of it. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. So we can stand up and say, this is who we were. This is who God created us to be now, has given us purpose. And he's used those very things, which we once were ashamed of to see others come to Christ. And so um, it's actually really unfair because I'll spend like, this happened multiple times in our marriage where I'll spend like two years pouring into somebody trying to get them to, to become a Christian. And they're like, I don't know. And then Liz is like, let me go have coffee with them for five minutes. They're like, yep, I want that. And I'm like, come on. Um, but if you were, you know, we, we saw in there, um, one of the things you said, this is the last question I'll ask you. One of the things you said was your first six months of becoming a new believer was just trying to figure out what did it, what does it look like to be, be a believer and not in the party scene and all that? And so obviously that video shows your, in some ways, lowest of lows and then also your highest of highs coming to Christ. But we recognize that life is usually lived somewhere in the middle. So what did your, what did your proverbial Monday through Friday look like right after you received Jesus? If somebody were to come forward today and say, mm-hmm. I want to drink deeply of this well, mm-hmm. what, what can they expect or what would you hope for them? Yeah, so before I really knew the Lord and considered myself a Christian, I would like open my Bible like randomly and kind of like, well, let's read that. And I had no idea what I was reading. It made no sense. And then after I came to know the Lord, it was like I had an insatiable desire to read the word. I mean, I could not put the Bible down. So I was then at a good church, am now at a good church. And these churches that are this good are really not super common. Um, So take advantage of what the summit has for you. Get in a small group, get in a Bible study, get under some people who are like-minded and will spur you on into the good works that the Lord has created for you to walk in before the creation of the world. So our pastors and our prayer team are gonna come down. Maybe you have someone you've been praying for for years and you're losing hope. Don't lose hope, keep praying. God is still on the throne and his purposes will prevail. So come down, talk to us, let us pray for you. I would love to pray for you. A women's director at another campus would love to pray for you. Our pastors would love to pray with you. So please take advantage of what we're offering um, in Christ. Yeah. Would y'all one more time just join me in celebrating what God continues to do in saving and restoring and redeeming. Um, Not just us, but so many people. This weekend we're believing when I said, when I said I was expectant for this weekend, I believe that lives truly will be changed, not because of anything we've done, but because of what and who God 
is, all right? And so um, why don't we do this at all of our locations? In just a moment, I'm going to ask Elizabeth to pray and close us out. But at all of our campuses, why don't we stand? And as you stand, um, our pastors and our prayer teams and our counselors are going to get into place. Um, And after she prays, she's going to send us. But as she said, if that's you, um, come forward, talk to somebody. Uh, If you came with somebody and you can talk to somebody, that's great. Talk to them. What we want you to know as a church family is you are not alone. Whether it's something you've done or again, something that's been done to you, you just need to know you are not alone. You don't have to walk alone. You do not have to be isolated or marginalized or cast out. We are here for you. We love you. We want to walk alongside you. And so um, I know maybe it's something very specific and personal like this, like Elizabeth's story was. And you might say, well, I'm not comfortable talking to a male pastor about that. That's fine. We will connect you with one of our women's coordinators at our campuses. We have plenty of them. They would love to chat with you. And But the first step is coming forward. Um, even your weekend, first weekend, going to First Baptist Church of Woodstock in August 27, 2007, uh, it wasn't walking an aisle. It was you went back and sat in a car next to a girl named Carlotta and said, Carlotta, here's all my stuff. And Carlotta said, here's the well of salvation. Drink deeply. And so tell somebody, talk to somebody. Or if you're, like she said, somebody that you need to pray for, um, come forward, pray for them. We believe God really wants to move and has the power to move. And so, um, babe, would you pray us out? Yep. Yep. Let's pray. God, you are kind and you're ready to forgive and you're abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear our prayer and listen to our pleas for mercy. God, we call on you in our days of distress because we know that you will answer us. You are great and you perform wonders and you alone are God. Teach us your ways, Lord, that we may live by your truth. Give us an undivided heart and mind to fear your name. Your faithful love for us is great and you rescue our lives from the depths of the pit. In Jesus' name, amen. Summit Church, in Christ you are fully known, you're fully loved, and we down here at the front would love to pray with you at all of our campuses. Please come down and let us pray for you. You are sent.